Welcome to the AJP Heart and Sark podcast. I'm Kara Hansel Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Scow et al. titled Impact of COVID 19 on Cardiac Autonomic Function in Healthy Young Adults Potential Role of Symptomology and Time Since Diagnosis. This rapid report was published November 21st, 2022 in our call for papers on the cardiovascular consequences of COVID. Joining us today are guest editor, Dr. Tiago Pisania, first author, Dr. Rachel Scow, and expert, Dr. Chris Minson. Let's get started. Tiago? Thanks, Kara. Uh, COVID-19 has had a great impact on people's life and had major direct and indirect effects on global health. As explored in previous episodes of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast, the cardiovascular system seems to be negatively impacted by the COVID infection, and COVID may increase the risk for future cardiovascular events. The mechanisms behind the increase in cardiovascular risk associated with the COVID infection are not completely known. Some studies have reported alterations in your cardiovascular regulation by the autonomic nervous system in post-COVID patients, while others have not. These equivocal findings may be related to the presence of persistent symptoms and time since diagnosis, which have varied in previous studies. The current manuscript by Sco and colleagues examines the impact of COVID-19 symptomology and time since diagnosis on cardiac autonomic function in health young adults. The study included 27 adults who had COVID-19 and were either asymptomatic or symptomatic at testing, and 20 adults who reported never having COVID-19. These individuals underwent assessments of the autonomic nervous system, including the evaluation of heart rate variability and spontaneous reflex sensitivity. Rachel, congratulations on this nice work that's that just been published in AGP Heart and Circ. Uh, could you give us um, some brief summary of the study protocol and of the main results from this study? So this protocol is part of a larger study where we were investigating the impact of COVID-19 on cardiovascular health in young adults. We actually started this in early 2021 as part of Damsara Nandadeva's PhD thesis project. And so for this particular manuscript, we evaluated the participants' resting cardiac baroreflex sensitivity and heart rate variability in order to determine if having COVID-19 impacted these measures of cardiac autonomic function. And so in order to do this, we measured beat-to-beat blood pressure using finger photoplasmography and heart rate using electrocardiography while the subjects rested quietly in the supine position. So spontaneous cardiac baroreflex sensitivity These measures tell us about how responsive the heart is to changes in blood pressure. And we do this by determining the reflexive changes in the interbeat interval, uh, so the R to R interval, and in response to both increases and decreases in systolic blood pressure. And so in general, a higher value is associated with better baroreflex function. And then heart rate variability was determined by measuring the variance in heart rate during quiet rest. And so this can be interpreted in both the time domain and the frequency domain. And so in the time domain, we look at this as a difference in the variation between the successive heartbeats and also the overall fluctuation in heart rate over time. And in the frequency domain, we use this to determine how much of the fluctuation can be attributed to be either parasympathetic or non-parasympathetic control. 
So in general, a higher heart rate variability is associated with better health and function. One exception to this is the low to high frequency power ratio, which represents autonomic balance. And in this ratio, higher values are actually associated with sympathetic dominance and lower values more parasympathetic, which is deemed healthier. So as you mentioned earlier, we studied this in a group of young adults who were diagnosed during the early variants of COVID-19, and we compared them to those who had never had COVID. And our findings were actually highly encouraging in that we actually showed no impact of COVID-19 on these markers of cardiac autonomic function. Keeping in line with our other studies, we also investigated the impact of symptomology by separating out our COVID group into those who still had persistent symptoms at the time of our assessment and comparing them to those who did not. So even when doing this, we actually still showed no difference in our markers of cardiac autonomic function. And lastly, given that we studied our participants at varying timeframes after their initial data diagnosis, we explored whether or not there were relationships between the amount of time that had passed since diagnosis and our outcomes of interest. And we did find some relationships that would suggest better cardiac autonomic function the longer from the date of diagnosis, perhaps indicating that there's a transient effect of COVID-19 on cardiac autonomic function in young adults. Thanks, Rachel. This is a nice summary and very interesting results from your study. Um, so I just want to pick on this last thing that you just said about the relationship between time since diagnosis and the cardiac autonomic dysfunction in your participants. You mentioned the, the transient cardiac autonomic dysfunction in people who had just been uh, recovered from, from the infection. Do you think there's any relevance to this transient autonomic dysfunction, if any? Ah, yes. Thanks for asking. So these results when paired with the results from our other work that was investigating the transient impact of COVID on both arterial stiffness and blood pressure, as well as the work by others. All of it suggests that there is a short-term impact of COVID-19 in the acute period, so kind of within the four-week range, and that that time there might be a negative impact on uh, autonomic function and other measures of cardiovascular health. Uh, however, the further out from diagnosis, the more pe likely people are to be within the normal range. Uh, however, within our time course data from this study, um, we actually kind of don't interpret it that way because the values reported at the earliest time points following diagnosis were actually still within the range of individuals in the control group. And so uh, for these particular outcomes, we would not classify it as autonomic dysfunction per se. Uh, Chris, uh, thanks for participating as the expert in this episode. So considering your expertise in the topic of the present study, uh, can you explain to our audience the role of the autonomic nervous system in the cardiovascular system and health and how alterations in the cardiovascular autonomic functions could be linked with an increased cardiovascular risk in individuals previously infected with COVID? Great, absolutely. First off, I want to congratulate Rachel on just a really excellent and important study. This work in people with COVID-19 and after COVID-19 are very, very difficult to do. So congratulations on that. So your first question is really about the role of the autonomic nervous system. And it's part of our peripheral nervous system. And it really runs a lot of those things we don't think about. So things such as digestion, blood pressure regulation, our heart rate, our sweating responses, uh, all of temperature regulation. So it has a, a very wide range of roles in the regulation of our normal daily activities. This question is really specifically about the role of the autonomic nervous system in cardiovascular control. And really, you know, we think of the two parts of the autonomic nervous system. One is the parasympathetic nervous system. We teach our undergraduates as the rest and digest side of it. 
And the other part is the sympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. We kind of call that the flight or fight, but that's really a misnomer. The sympathetic nervous system is on all the time. It's what allows you to sit upright, stand upright. If we measure direct recordings of the sympathetic nervous system, it's active at, at uh, supine rest. So it's really not just a flight or fight response. It's really very, very important in uh, regulating blood flow and blood pressure all throughout our lives. And so one thing we know about COVID-19 is that it does seem to have some big impacts on the autonomic nervous system. So when, as was already mentioned, when someone has uh, COVID-19, oftentimes the autonomic nervous system is disrupted or seems to be acting differently. This can be from increases in blood pressure or decreases in blood pressure. A lot of people have a uh, uh, report uh, fainting or dizziness. This could all be from dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. And one thing that is very clear is that people with cardiovascular disease before they get COVID tend to have much more complications with COVID and certainly maybe at higher risk of long COVID. And we still don't fully understand that other than knowing that the healthier you are, then when you do get COVID and you have this massive cytokine response and you have this inflammatory response, um, as well as oxidative stress and a bunch of other things that we know disrupt the cardiovascular system, they're going to have more complications with that. And that makes it more difficult for the autonomic nervous system to regulate blood pressure and blood flow. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Rachel, I'd like then to explore a bit more this relationship between COVID symptomatology and cardiovascular autonomic dysfunction. So as reported in the manuscript and described in literature, COVID has been linked with different clinical manifestations indicative of cardiovascular autonomic dysfunction, including orthostatic hypertension, press syncope, palpitations, dyspnea, headache, and, and fatigue. In your study, these symptoms were less frequent or absent, and the most frequent symptom was loss of taste or smell, which is also very common uh, in COVID patients. Even though you didn't observe differences in cardiovascular autonomic function between symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals, do, do you think that this would have been different if you had had a higher occurrence of these autonomic symptoms, such as, for example, as I was saying before, orthostatic hypotension and breast syncope and things like that? Yeah, great question. Yeah, this particular cohort of individuals were young and otherwise healthy individuals. They were university students for the most part. And uh, in this group, there were low rates of these autonomic symptoms that uh, the symptoms that we now know are more commonly associated with actually a long COVID diagnosis. Uh, and so I think you're correct in suggesting that in a cohort of individuals uh, who experience symptoms that align with autonomic dysfunction, we might expect outcomes like cardiac baroreflex sensitivity, or heart rate variability, or other markers of cardiac autonomic function to be negatively effective. Uh, and uh, luckily for us, uh, there's a growing number of studies in individuals that have received a long COVID diagnosis. And so I assume that if it's not already answered, that question will probably be answered in the near future. Thanks, Rachel. Following up on that, do you think is there any other mechanism that could be related and help to explain then this increased cardiovascular risk and symptoms that are experienced by post-COVID patients, so perhaps uh, not the autonomic nervous system, as you didn't show any difference between groups there, but other uh, important uh, regulatory mechanisms to the cardiovascular system. Thanks for asking. First and foremost, uh, my gut reaction would just be to say inflammation. So the inflammatory pathway has been well documented to be affected by COVID-19, uh, and we know that inflammation negatively impacts many aspects of cardiovascular health. Uh, we and others have also observed reductions in brachial artery blood flow-mediated dilation, 
and also increases in pulse rate velocity following COVID-19 diagnosis, particularly in those with persistent symptoms beyond the acute phase of the illness. And so a reduction in endothelial function and or increases in arterial stiffness are both linked to vascular dysfunction and an increased risk for future cardiovascular events. So generally speaking, even in our young, otherwise healthy folks, if coupled with some other risk factors like family history or sedentary behavior, with the addition of COVID-19, even that slight reduction in vascular function could theoretically result in a worse long-term prognosis for their cardiovascular health. Thanks, Rachel. Chris, what kind of measures could be done to counteract the impairment in cardiovascular function and increased cardiovascular risk in post-COVID patients? This is an excellent question and one that's really actually quite hard to explain, only because we just don't know enough at this point. And one of the complications is that the consequences, and even if we just narrow it to the cardiovascular side, are really quite diverse and complicated to understand when we're looking at either during COVID or post-COVID. So the simple answer, and this is my way of cheating the question a little bit, is really to be as healthy as possible before you get COVID. As we know clearly that, that having underlying comorbidities really make the COVID-19 response uh, or illness much, much worse. That said, you know there are a few things I think that if someone during the time they have COVID and certainly after COVID with a if they're experiencing long COVID, things they can try and do would include things like really trying to get as much sleep and rest as possible to really focus on good sleep habits, certainly staying hydrated. Uh, hydration and blood volume can have a huge impact on our blood pressure regulation and I think can help ameliorate some of those problems we know that occur with autonomic dysfunction. I'm a big believer as an exercise physiologist in exercise and the benefits of exercise. It can have many, many great impacts on the cardiovascular and autonomic nervous systems. One of the challenge there, of course, is that a lot of people post-COVID have a lot of fatigue. So that makes it very difficult for them to exercise. So even if they're able to get out of bed and walk around, I prefer hopefully walk around outside, get some benefits of nature. And um, I think that will be helpful as well. There are, of course, some medications that, and that have been recommended for people who are suffering from long COVID. And I'm not a physician, so I don't really can't speak in details about that. But I can tell you that a lot of the medications that are used post-COVID can have some impacts on the cardiovascular system as well. Some of them have been associated with increases in ECG changes and arrhythmias. They could be involved with uh, too much fluid retention or ischemic events, deep vein thrombosis, the tachycardia, I mean, really high heart rates, and certainly blood pressure disorders. So there's a lot of challenges with turning to a, a medical therapeutic approach to managing the post-COVID. Um, certainly, sometimes they're absolutely needed to try and uh, get the person back to normal functioning. But I think uh, if we go back to just what is the healthiest things we can do, those are the type of best responses we can have to helping to overcome the problems with long COVID. Rachel, uh, could you please share with us one or two strands of your study and follow that up with something that perhaps could be considered a limitation or something that you would do differently if you had the chance? So I'm actually going to start with the limitations so that I can end on a high note. And based on our conversations so far, it probably is no surprise that one of the limitations to this study is the cross-sectional nature of this research. And so although the correlations with respect to time from diagnosis are significant and do align with the other research that's come out, it would have been nice to have followed up with the same participants from early in their illness uh, all the way to a full recovery to see if these individuals did in fact have transient changes. 
And the second thing would actually have been uh, to have more participants studied within that four week of diagnosis range to be able to compare the acute phase of the illness to this longer duration of recovery. Our original intention was to recruit people early in the illness and then follow them up. However, that timing just did not work out for us. And so as you can appreciate, this is very challenging since we can't just give participants COVID and then follow them up and study them at very specific time points. And so in that sense, I actually wanna take a moment just to acknowledge the team at Appalachian State University uh, who were able to do this uh, quite well and who have been able to provide some of the answers to both the acute and longitudinal aspects uh, of COVID-19 uh, in young adults with respect to their cardiovascular function. And so the best part though, is that their data and our data actually align very nicely and tell a quite complementary story. Uh, one major strength of our study is that we quantified the symptoms of our participants and that we were able to recruit enough people with these persistent symptoms in order to be able to actually ask whether or not there are differences in folks who still had any symptom versus those whose symptoms had fully resolved. And so this is something that across all of our studies has definitely set our work apart from others um, and been able to answer a few extra questions. We were also uh, very fortunate uh, to be able to find individuals who had never contracted COVID-19, at least at the time of our study. And so we have this control group for comparison uh, that not only never had COVID, but also lived through those early phases of the pandemic, which may have had its own uh, unique impact on cardiovascular health. Chris, what do you think are the potential aspects that still need to be investigated in terms of the mechanisms underlying cardiovascular disease and dysfunction in post-COVID patients? Really great question. And my short answer is there is no short answer. Um, we're so, so early still in trying to understand the effects of COVID-19. Um, and this is particularly because of all the different variants we have. And we still really don't know if different variants are, are affecting people differently and what the long-term consequences of different variants are. So that's my, one of my first answers. We just simply need to better understand how these variants can affect uh, the different, different uh, patient populations and subject groups. And in Rachel's study, you know, one of the important things is that they did this very early on. So we got a nice snapshot of kind of the people getting their first exposure to uh, COVID-19. And that's a group we're not going to really see much more because we're um, going to be having the different variants kind of having more of a big effect. So we'll be able to use this as a, as a benchmark, if you will, to try and look at how, how things might change with different variants. The other things I think, you know, we just need to have more subjects studied a lot more and certainly a, a wider range of uh, populations, a lot of uh, wider range of comorbidities coming into the disease, certainly a, a larger age range, and really a, a better understanding of the time course of the cardiovascular and autonomic dysregulation that can occur both during COVID-19 exposure and following that for the long-term COVID as well. Um, so those are a couple things, but there's, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, we still don't really understand what the best treatments are and how these can possibly either decrease the chance of having cardiovascular and autonomic disorders after having COVID and, uh, how, or how these might uh, make it make the situation worse, perhaps. So there are just a whole host of questions that we need to address. And one thing I want to highlight about the study is that this is an integrative cardiovascular autonomic study, and these are very difficult to do in very large populations. So we need to have both. Some groups who are more focused on outcomes in very large populations. But we really need to have more of these smaller studies that have you know, more specific tests of the autonomic nervous system to really understand what's happening. And so this is a very good start in having the, this information for us for long-term understanding of the consequences of COVID-19 on the autonomic nervous system and eventual cardiovascular disorders. 
Thanks, Chris. I, I would add as well that it, it, I would be interested to know how is the blood flow regulation during the exercise of these participants, because they do have a lot of fatigue, as you were saying before, Chris, but I'm not sure if we know a lot about uh, what are the mechanisms that underlie uh, this fatigue and perhaps also underlie abnormal responses to exercise. So maybe it's also a good pathway for these next studies. So uh, Rachel, is there anything else that we haven't touched on this podcast that you'd like to mention? Yeah, um, thank you so much for asking. So the other thing that I wanted to do is to just to make sure that I emphasized Miss Nicole Garza's involvement as my co-first author. So she started working with us in May 2021 as an undergraduate intern, and she was actually the one who took the lead on this analysis. She even won the Janet and Robert Speth Undergraduate Research Award to present the preliminary data from this manuscript at EB 2022 in Philly. And so uh, this project really wasn't just a PhD project that had some extra data, but rather a whole extra question that oh. was driven by her curiosity and willingness to learn about the research project. So I just want to make sure that she's acknowledged for all of her hard work, uh, even though I'm the one who got to talk to you about it today. Thanks, Rachel. Chris? As we've discussed, I think there are so many questions that it's, it's, a, it's a wide open book about understanding COVID-19 and its consequences on uh, cardiovascular disease. And Tiago, as you mentioned, I think better understanding how COVID and its consequences will result in our ability to exercise is a, is a fantastic question. And as you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of complications and changes in blood flow regulation and fatigue and energy. And those things are, are, are critically important to our understanding. And we're really at the, in our infancy of trying to understand that those factors. Certainly the fatigue issue is one that's going to be so difficult because again, as an exercise physiologist, I'm not going to say exercise fixes everything, but I certainly will say that it, it does seem to make our cardiovascular system better. And it certainly does seem to help with our autonomic uh, dysfunction as well for those who can exercise. So getting at what the underlying fatigue and how that relates to the overall inflammatory responses that we have, some of the central regulation of uh, motivation and, and pain perception and those types of things, as well as trying to understand even how it impacts our ability to thermoregulate and all these other aspects um, of met regulating blood flow to our various tissues. These are all disrupted. And Rachel made a great point that we know that the end, there's endothelial disruption um, and that seems to really impact the health of our blood vessels as well as the, our ability to respond uh, adequately to exercise. My take-home message from all this really is we just need more studies, we need more people really getting into this. And I think uh, Rachel's last point was excellent in that, you know, getting undergraduates involved in this research, getting them excited about it, giving them opportunities that uh, gives us better bandwidth and hopefully more future integrative physiologists to continue these lines of research. Thanks, Chris. So I guess it's a good message for the undergrad students listening to us. Go there and, and talk with the PhD students, talk with the researchers in your department, because uh, your idea might be a paper at the AGP Heart Network, and you could be here at the podcast. So I guess I will finish now, and on behalf of the AGP Heart Network and the entire scientific community that will benefit from this data, I want to congratulate you, Rachel, and your team on a great study. And Chris, thank you very much for being part of this podcast as well and sharing your insights. Back to you, Kara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.